1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Diana Clark, and we have a wonderful guest, Janet Benvenuti. Welcome to our podcast, Janet. Thank you, Arden. I'm delighted to be here. So for all our listeners, Janet is considered one of the country's leading health and family advocates. She founded a great organization called Circle of Life Partners, and she's counseled hundreds of families and educated thousands of people on how to plan for longevity and support of aging relatives without disrupting their careers, damaging health, or depleting a family's finances. She also advises leading clinicians, business executives, professional advisors, and entrepreneurs on how to best meet the the needs of an aging population and their adult children. She's authored a number of articles and a book that I absolutely love the title of. I'm always looking for creative titles Don't Give Up On Me, Supporting Aging Parents Successfully, and her latest entitled Longevity The Future for Women, Entrepreneurship, and Elder Care. So with all of that in mind, we're excited to have you today on a topic that I think has always been important and one that people struggle with, but particularly during the pandemic, I think has come to light even more. So could you tell our listeners a little bit, Janet, about how you came to do the work that you're doing?
2: Sure. Um, Before I do that, Arden, I just wanted to acknowledge the work that you and Diana are doing, not only through the O'Connor Professional Group, but also with this podcast, One of the challenges that I took on two decades ago was the silence around the issues of aging and aging parents and the impact on careers, the impact on the family's assets and so forth. And my intent was to normalize conversations around what often are private topics. And the two of you have taken on through this podcast and other work, normalizing conversations around suicide, around mental illness, around uh addictive disorders that frankly many families myself included we have difficulty sharing and discussing in public um so i i'm so excited that with the work that you're doing anyways and this podcast the fact that i'm able and others are able to listen to professionals we're able to listen to family stories um this is going to lead to much more uh, hopefully Normalize conversations around a whole other area that is difficult for families to navigate, which is mental illness and and related issues. So thank you both, because this is a it's a hard area to uh, get into, and uh, it's easy for me to talk about aging and aging parents today. Um, but we started in the same similar place decades ago. Um, I am. Uh, about the last person who expected to be doing the work that I'm doing. I'm trained as a nuclear chemist. I worked in the aerospace sector and uh, worked on climate change pre uh, business school. After business school I became an executive with one of the drug companies where I was responsible for leading their global quality improvement initiatives. I had an appointment to a President's Commission working on America's competitiveness and initiatives that began in the manufacturing sectors and then moved into uh, the service sector then into education and into healthcare. In my mid-30s I launched a virtual consulting business and I was advising executives on how to do the same, how to lead strategic change, how to create cultures of innovation, how to streamline and restructure the way work was done and in the midst of all that, I got a phone call from my father asking for help. He had learned that morning that a pain in his side that he thought was pneumonia was actually lung cancer. And after reaching his physician to schedule the surgery to have the disease lung removed, he called his attorney and then he called me and he asked a simple question, would you mind helping your mother out paying bills and such? And I said, well, of of course, dad. (laughs) And I immediately tried to figure out how I was gonna reschedule my work so I could be there for him when he had the lung removed and then help set up some things at home for he and my mom. With that phone call, I became legally responsible for both he and my mother. He had lung cancer obviously, um, was in the last few years of his life and my mother was living with both heart disease and dementia. I had a six-year-old and a three-year-old, a full-time job, a husband who traveled Monday through Friday and, and I was very naively thinking, well, how hard could this be? And I soon learned how hard it is. The fragmentation of services, the huge gap between the medical system and the mental health system, the overuse, the misuse, the abuse of medication, the the difficulty in chasing down resources and finding a competent, capable help. And I, again, I was in my 30s and I said to my husband, you know, if we're having this much trouble, we're in trouble as a country. Mm. And I began to look into the future, look at the world in the year 2030. What would the demographics be in this country? Um, what were the solutions that needed to be put in place? And I started, because I mean, I'm a scientist and once a nerd, always a nerd, I started by focusing on the clinical issues. I learned about women's health and how do diseases manifest themselves differently in women versus men. I learned about brain health. Um, I joined the Marino Center for Integrative Medicine, which is that combination of great primary care coupled with activities like yoga or deep tissue massage or meditation which at that time people did not think of as real medicine (laughs) that was sure you can eat well but you know here's a pill you need the, the medication as opposed to you need to change your diet and get more exercise and do some meditation we didn't have palliative care as a discipline until 2009. I started working on this in the year 2000. Certainly we didn't have conversations or an infrastructure for paid family leave. People did not wear Apple watches. We had telemedicine for years as one of your speakers, Dr. Carlin noted, um, but it didn't get funded, frankly, widespread until the pandemic it was uh, 2016 when physicians finally got paid to have conversations with their patients about their end-of-life preferences. So I've teamed up with thousands of people uh, to work on these initiatives and more and because of the book that I wrote I also uh, began speaking publicly about navigating the journey with my own parents. Um, Harvard business school among others picked me up as you know Arden and for the past 13 years uh, twice a year I've facilitated a conversation with executives which the room is oversubscribed Two to 300 people attend every every year twice a year it's never been recorded because my goal was to have candid peer-to-peer mm-hmm. conversations about what was going on in our parents lives that were impacting our lives and careers, and then by doing that, highlighting some of the changes that needed to happen systemically. It's not by accident that we are now having a national conversation about paid family leave. It's uh, Massachusetts, for example, is the fifth state in the country to actually initiate a payroll deduction starting this year for to offer paid family leave for all uh, the citizens in the state. Um, So it's been a privilege to do the work that I do and I continue to get uh, pulled into conversations and as of course a consequence of that, occasionally people would reach out to me and ask for help with their own families. And so I have, of course, uh, many, many stories to share along those lines. Hopefully that can be instructional for the folks listening to this conversation.
0: What an amazing beginning, Janet. This is Diana. Welcome. What I would love to know is that our perception of aging as an aging woman has shifted over the last 20, 30 years. How do you look at it and how do you see it in a way that's both optimistic and yet realistic?
2: Well, if you and I were to have a conversation, Diana, about your parents, and I know you mentioned earlier that I believe you have four that uh, three or four, four
0: octogenarian parents.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we would likely begin the conversation around some of their medical issues. You might mention that perhaps uh, your father-in-law has Parkinson's disease, or a mother's diabetes is out of control, or some other uh, clinical issue. Would be how we would center the conversation, and that is. While management of chronic illnesses and even some uh, mental health issues can be a part of managing an aging journey, it's really the wrong way to start a conversation about aging. Instead, I'd like people to think of aging as a transition over time from independence to dependency on others. So the image I would have you uh, reflect on is you know parents are driving in an automobile down a highway and instead of mile markers they're passing age markers they're 60 65 70 75 and so forth the father may be driving the automobile your mother may be in the passenger seat and they may reverse roles as as they age because men typically predecease their wives by 5 to 7 years The adult children may, at different times, be in the back seat, providing some general support. But over time, your mother may become a widow. And then maybe you slide into the passenger seat. And in time, you may take over the driving. So it is a process. And there are specific changes, predictable changes that will start to happen with aging individuals, and there are a handful of what I call the vital few, separated from the trivial many, decisions that families need to make that can enable those older folks in the family to live as well as possible for as long as possible, and I want to add with as much joy as possible, but to have the kind of support that's needed over time as some of the skills which they may have um, and it has enabled them to live independently begin to change. Um, as you know because you both are familiar with clinical issues there are six attributes that are called instrumental activities of daily living that start to change this is news for the average person and we know those six (laughs) these are the (laughs) skills that we all learned as children and teenagers we first learned how to transport ourselves places we learned how to walk and run and ride a bicycle and perhaps take public transportation and learn how to drive and some people on the podcast also know how to fly planes and helicopters so we can transport ourselves places. We know how to money works, how to spend it, how to manage it, how to invest it, how to pay our bills. We have the ability to uh, source food. Uh, I prefer to make reservations, not dinner, Um, and some folks have cooks at home as well and staff. We can Uh, The fourth skill is we can maintain our property, our clothes and so forth. And again we may have people who help with this and some of course high net worth folks do have significant staffs. The fifth skill is we can communicate verbally and in writing, we text, we tweet. And the sixth skill is that if your physician asks you to take medication in the morning and another pill in the evening you can comply with that medication. One of the challenges when people age is they begin to lose their ability to do those activities. So you may have a parent who talks about not driving at night anymore. Or um, someone, a client or a parent who has always been able to manage their own investments and assets, and now they're starting to get a little fuzzy around that. this is true with clients as well. Your mother perhaps always loved to cook and now you find spoiled food when you visit or she, she has begun to order out. So these are in a naturally aging adult, these are the things that begin to change. If someone is in their 60s, for example, and perhaps they have a, huge, a large home and they are thinking about now getting a condo in the city that's a great choice because they will have access to public transportation they can walk places Um, again some families have personal drivers it's a different story but the 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 sort of proactive decision making comes into play when you realize that some of these skills will change and so one of the fundamental questions is if you were not able to manage your assets for example your financial well-being Well who is gonna oversee your assets? And if it's your spouse and you're both in your eighties, well, who is the successor? Is it an adult child? Is it a professional? You know, that is a an important decision that needs to be made proactively. And similarly around issues of managing health. If for example, Diana forgive me for this example, if you were in a car accident and went into a medically induced coma, well who would be making decisions on your behalf until you recovered? And with older individuals who may experience dementia and permanent cognitive changes, once that healthcare agency is triggered, whoever is in that role will be making medical choices for their parent through the end of their lives. So We know that there's a set of six instrumental activities of daily living. And when Joanna Martin, one of your previous speakers, talked about some of the changes that um, people have, these are well documented. And then as people transition toward the end of their lives, they will need help with um, activities of daily living. These are the things that we did this morning without thinking about it. Uh, we got out of bed they call that transferring out of bed you handled your hygiene you got dressed for the day you didn't just prepare food for yourself but you were actually able to feed yourself and then uh, you walked into the room where you're seated right now so as people again age even further they may need help with activities of daily living the most common question I get is so how long is this going to last I have, you know, parents and step parents, and parents and step parents, you know, how long am I going to be at this stage in life? Uh, 42, I think the latest data, 42% of people need help for a year or less. And almost a third of folks, 29% need help for five years or more. So once people, get into a stage in life where your parents are needing support you can be at that stage for decades. I supported my parents in my 30s um, although I like to think I'm still very youthful. I am older than that now and I am still supporting an aging parent. My mother-in-law is 95 years old this year. so understanding how to navigate the resources that exist understanding how to make certain strategic decisions and get them out of the way so most of the time you spend with your parents you're spending that time enjoying their company and they are enjoying their lives um, through the end of the life and that's that's how i think about aging that it is a process there are specific decisions that need to be made proactively Um, And once they are made in place, and it's iterative, they're not all made in one year or one moment, um, but if they're made thoughtfully, then families don't run from crisis to crisis. When a crisis arrives, they have a sense of what they need to do to address the crisis, and then when they settle back down again, they're able to continue enjoying life together.
0: That's really a beautiful vision, and I love the metaphor of the car. As somebody who loves to drive. Um, <laughs> how do we approach this sensitive subject to, you know, any of our parents without it basically saying, that's it, give me the keys, I'm now driving. How, we, mm-hmm. If we do it, I imagine, with enough forethought and slowly, we may not find the resistance. How do you suggest we raise these subjects?
2: Well, it it varies. Um, I can share with you some specific examples if that would be helpful. Definitely. Um, It's a series of conversations. There can be a situation that could trigger an event, um, for example, or or trigger a conversation. For example, um, there was a, a... a woman reached out to me because her stepmother appeared to be having some cognitive changes. She wasn't quite sure if what she was seeing was really happening, but she wanted to approach her father to have a conversation. And because it was a blended family, there were step-siblings as well as uh, her natural biological siblings, uh, it was a bit dicey. And the father was um, and is a well-known business executive and philanthropist. And so there were sensitivities all around. So what we did is we talked about how to approach her father and to see what, if what she was observing was real, um, if the stepmom had been evaluated, for example. And she did that, and was would he be open to discussing this with all of the family, not just her? And then separately, I suggested that she also reach out to his attorney, because she th- thought, and this had been the game plan, that she would be the one overseeing the assets right, for the estate. But we know how parents can be, and they may have changed their plans, and of course he didn't, so she did set up uh, an appointment with the attorney as well to their trust and state's attorney just to discuss the legal planning and again this was all in conversation with the the father and then um i had suggested that she think about having a, a, a conversation with the entire family you see i i work with adult children and not the elders themselves typically because if the adult children as a unit can you know, agree, even to agree to disagree, but can approach the parents in a lovingly way to make suggestions or to um, offer help, then the parent is more likely to respond positively. So in this particular case, I had suggested that they have a family meeting. Another now there are mediators, of course, who, who do this, which she asked me to, to design the meeting, facilitate it, which was fine. So what I did is I interviewed each of the five siblings and asked them, got a sense from them if they had observed some of the changes in the mom. Did they understand the trajectory of dementia, what that w- might look like in the future? Did they have any sense of how they would like to see things unfold, if the parents should stay in their own home, would they move to a continual care retirement community. And then I designed a meeting around that. And I held the meeting at a, my one of my clubs, not one of their clubs, because I didn't want gossip to start. Why are these five children's siblings and step-siblings getting together with the dad? So the meeting went well. And the adult children then began to have additional conversations going forward in addition to that I linked them to and again worked with them to bring in a professional care manager you know your family is not the first one to deal with uh, someone who has dementia as you know in in the mental health arena there's certainly in the in the aging arena there are many many resources out there and they're extraordinarily talented Uh, professional care managers who can come in who have expertise with dementia or Parkinson's or whatever uh, illnesses you're dealing with. And in this particular case, the woman I recommended is a nurse. She had relationships with the physicians that they would be working with. Um, She also was someone who sailed and had an interest in the arts and was not in the least intimidated by this family who could be quite intimidating um, to some care managers and so she would be great fun for the, the mom to be with and yet she was so professional and very talented. And so then as the family began moving forward, I back out because I do interventions. I don't actually manage cases as you do and as um, professional care managers will do, where they stay with the family and they manage um, a case over, over time. I, I like to come in when they, they're, they're struggling with a specific issue, if I'm asked, help them manage that correctly, figure out what to do over the next few months, maybe three to six months, and then I back out and, and make sure they're working with what I'll call the right professionals um, to handle a case. When you're thinking about a family system, Diana, you had mentioned in a different um, podcast about how do you identify, I call them the influencer in the family. If a parent mm-hmm. resists conversations, there are a few suggestions I have. And the first question I would ask all, all folks to think about is who influences the father. If this father had been resistant to having conversations, um, as others do, well, perhaps the woman who came to me is not the influencer in the family. Perhaps it is a different sibling. Uh, Perhaps it would be one of his siblings. Perhaps it is a long-time golfing buddy. I mean, everyone is influenced mm-hmm. by someone. And so when you're having a more difficult conversation, you need to think about, well, who in the family is the influencer? If it's the dad who's throwing up obstacles, maybe it's your older brother for you know who is um, has more influence over him and even though it may be maddening to think about that because you're the one who's close by and you're the one who's going to be navigating many of the issues if you're trying to overcome resistance you need to think about the the influencer Um, and then uh, once you begin the process rolling having sort of a framework of you know where are you going with this can can also be helpful.
0: That is a great comment. Who is the influencer? And it may be exasperating. It may be the person who lives around the world away from the parents, and you may be taking care of the day-to-day needs. And we have mm-hmm. clients where that has been the situation, for sure.
2: And, and, the, and the, the strategy, of course, is you're building a team of support around the aging parents and you're building a team of support around the person whom I call the designated child so that person you mentioned who lives next door or lives in a neighboring town they they're there daily so the the person who lives abroad uh, and it yet is well they're they they're going to have a role to play and it may be when there are issues of resistance that part of their role is just simply um become involved in helping a parent get past that. It may be that they're helping to do some research. Uh, it certainly may be that they're helping you, if you are the, that designated child, they're helping to free up some of your time so that you have the time and energy to both support your parents, and in many cases, people are also juggling work, responsibilities, and, and their own children, and their own lives.
1: I think this conversation is fascinating and Janet, I think we could be um, on this podcast for another 30 minutes because there's so many different ways to take the conversation. I wanted to throw in a different question because I know there's a lot we could still unpack with families, but I wanted to get to an issue that I know a lot of our listeners are concerned about it and that's really around how does wealth impact family dynamics and access to care? So I'm going to sort of combine both um, because I think Certainly there's an outsider's perception, I think, in the behavioral health world at least, that you know, if you have money, you can fix many things. And, and we have certainly not seen that to be true. Um, but I'm curious sort of, what your perception has been for those wealthier clients who are trying to get good care. You know, how, how does it help or, or hinder the process?
2: I think it helps tremendously, of course, to be able to hire a team of support so when you're not worried about running out of money you can bring on a team who would include perhaps as i did with this family a nurse care manager so the adult children who are busy running their own lives often in senior positions themselves they know that their parent is in the hands of a um professionals who can bring them to medical appointments, who can oversee home care. And again, we're talking about a a place and time when parents are no longer as able to manage things themselves. They often already have staffs in place to cook and to take care of their properties and even to oversee their assets and their investments and so forth. So so in many uh, cases, the infrastructure is in place but what is interesting is delegating to to professionals has a a, a sort of a blind spot because what in my opinion what every older person needs is someone in the family who will watch out for them, Um, who has their best interest in mind who who loves them and has a loving relationship with them who will basically be their advocate who will oversee the professionals those folks who are professionals listening to your podcast may find my position a little bit disconcerting but i have seen situations in which it was the intervention of a family member who cared for an older individual just as a human being, as part of the family unit, who made a tremendous difference in their lives when the professionals wouldn't or uh, couldn't do what was needed. Let me give you a specific example. Um, there was a, a couple who were, uh, did not have children. The father was, uh, the man uh, was um, quite wealthy and he lived in the Houston area. And he had everything set up for he and his wife as they aged. They had caretakers, a caretaker couple living on their property. They had all of the legal planning in place. They had folks overseeing their finances. And the wife passes away and the, the older gentleman was aging alone. His brother had been the person who would have overseen the estate, but the brother was older as well, and they're both now in their 80s. And so they made a transition to having a niece step in to just oversee things, and she reached out to me because she said, Jan I have no idea what I'm supposed to do Um, you know I'm going to visit him but I have no idea what am I what am I supposed to look for what should I ask for so I developed an agenda for her she went down gathered up all the necessary materials came back interacted with his concierge physician interacted with of course the caretaking couple interacted with made sure things were all set up for him and of course he now had dementia Made, brought in a care manager and just sort of from a long distance was making sure that how he wanted to live was being properly administered. And in the process, it, she caught wind that the caretaking couple actually was working to have him change his will. Now, I'm not an attorney. <sighs> and i know there are ground rules around these things and there are some there are some nuances around whether someone has the capacity to change a will which from my perspective given his situation and his age and his obvious dementia i would have suggested that well maybe no that, that he doesn't but of course in legal terms he he did And so we had a conversation, and I worked as a sounding board for her first to talk this through. She then reached out to folks who understood laws in Texas, who understood the legal ramifications of what would be going on, and had a conversation with his attorney. The long and short of it, the outcome was that the will was not changed, and after he passed away, she did, in fact, administer the estate. Now, here's the situation. He was basically gifting all of his money to two nonprofits. She was not getting anything. She didn't want anything. This was not her role. She just loved him and wanted him to live well through the end of his life. And she did, in fact, um, take care of the caretaking couple as well, despite what they had tried to do so it all worked out well in the end but i have had conversations with people who had lots of wealth whose families did not really want to engage in helping oversee what was going on in their lives and um, situations can surface uh... that a loving family member would not tolerate would intervene would make changes you know advisors can be fired they <laughs> they can, they can <laughs> be replaced uh that is not what people want to hear but if they're not there again every situation is unique and one would hope that everything would be managed well but i i think there's no substitute for a loving family member being involved even though they may not do the yeoman's work of um the caregiving and the sort of micromanaging, they're there as the quality control if nothing else.
1: Well, I feel like we could go on and on, but I know we have to wrap things up shortly. Janet, we'd like to end the podcast with just a question around what are things to consider? So what are a couple of sound bites you would give to our audience members, whether they're families or advisors as they think about issues related to aging parents and aging in general?
2: To the advisors, I would like you to think about broadening what you do for your clients. I I, I heard repeatedly that people have to stay in their lane, for example. You know, if you are a trust and estates attorney um, or if you're a financial advisor and you hear, for example, that you have a a, a client with a child who's having mental health challenges, you know, referring someone to the O'Connor group. it, can't, it will be very much appreciated. I will tell you that advisors who view their roles a bit broader than historically um, defined will end up with loyal families as, as clients' loyalty. You will not only have your clients' <laughs> um, uh, assets, for example, to manage, but you will have their children and their friends. um, And that is what your competition is doing. So I, for example, uh, financial advisors are fabulous at managing assets. I don't see a lot of them who are actually running the numbers and helping families make housing decisions, who truly understand the economics of housing, for example, and every older individual makes housing choices. Um, with regard to families, recognizing that aging is a process, and even you, Arden, and Diana, as young as you <laughs> both are, you should also be looking at um, making sure your legal plans are in place, making sure you know who would oversee your health and your wealth if something were to happen to you. Thinking about where you live. Do you have a concierge um, physician? Do you have? Are you in the right uh medical system for your own care Um, are you focusing on those things that do contribute to longevity which we know there are six specific things that do um, including diet, exercise, socialization, stress management and sleep along with a sense of purpose and so um, understanding how, how the aging process begins and how you have open conversations with folks and how Advisors need to broaden their lens um, and broaden the list of folks perhaps to whom they refer their clients. That will um, hopefully strengthen the ecosystem around families because 22% of baby boomers are aging alone and they are going to need help managing their own life situations. They may not have a family member to turn to and having advisors whom they can count on is
1: important.
0: Those are great pieces of advice for both our professional listeners and the family listeners. Start talking.
1: Absolutely. Janet, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We really appreciate your candor, your examples, and your thoughtfulness around this important topic. And we hope to have you again. I feel like the conversation could continue in a variety of different directions. Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. And thank I look, for look for forward
0: to me. seeing you in my dining room someday.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do as well. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.